Welcome to episode 28 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And this week we're watching Rooney Mara undo Ben Mendelsohn's Steely Visage in Benedict Andrews' Una. We'll be counting down our top three favourite films of the year so far, as well as sharing our top movie picks and the Cultural Capital Film Diary. But first, we're frocking up to join Scarlett Johansson, Zoe Kravitz and Kate McKinnon in Lucia Agnello's Rough Night. This is it. Your bachelorette weekend. What's in my head? There's going to be so many hot Miami babes. We're going to be swimming in dick, girl. Hi, Alice. <laughs> Peter. Hi. Hey. And get out of here. She's mine now. Mm-hmm. Don't get in too much trouble, okay? Yeah, I won't. <laughs> the Wallace fifth floor girls are back together again. <laughs> We don't get to see each other a lot because we're all so busy with our lives. Pippa, what are you doing for work these days? Well, singer-songwriter is the dream. Uh, Party clown is the reality. But this weekend's all about us, just like old times. Director Lucia Aniello is best known for creating and directing the TV series Broad City. So it's no surprise to see her feature film debut reuniting her with that show's star on the make, Alana Glazer. Rough Night is a female-centred comedy in which the men suffer and the women bond in innovative ways. The movie tells the story of a group of five friends who reunite ten years after meeting in college for a bachelorette weekend. The bride-to-be is Jess, a Senate hopeful, played by Scarlett Johansson. Her best friend Alice, played by Gillian Bell, takes the helm of organising the weekend, which means heading to a mansion in Miami. Joining the gang is radical feminist activist Frankie, played by Alana Glazer, real estate mogul Blair, played by Zoe Kravitz, and Jess's new best friend, an Australian New Age hippie, played by a scene-stealing Kate McKinnon. The girls' weekend of risque fun is brought to a bloody halt when they accidentally kill a male stripper, try to conceal the deed, and end up making more trouble for themselves. Eloise, was watching this a rough night for you? Uh, well actually it's funny you say that because I took my friend Julia and she had written in her diary rough night with Ello um, and it just basically looked like she and I were going to have a really crazy night um, which I think is possibly one of the ways that's going to be marketed anyway I thought this was really fun it had a great flow and a really great rhythm you know for a fun comedy I mean you know no one's going to kind of get any surprises here although thankfully the trailer really does this movie no favours, I think. Um, it kind of, you know, kind of suggests that the plot is going in other directions. And I think yeah. that it, it's a much better movie than the trailer suggests it's going to be. It never stayed in place for one place for too long. Um, it had a really yeah, good flow and energy, as I said. And I think in some ways it suffered for this because it was kind of episodic and it got a bit maybe sitcom in a way, you know, it was like how many different ways can this night go wrong? Um, let's you know, check these off the list. Um, and occasionally I did, I did at one point think, you know, oh, I wish this I was like again, but you know, overall they got out over that hump and it, it ended up being really fun. A really nice kind of character study as well. I really liked the way that the five main characters work together. There's a bit when Alice and Alice, who is Jess's best friend and is being threatened by Pip, who is possibly the new best friend, Alice mocks the Australian accent that Kate McKinnon is doing and kind of, you know, puts on a fake, uh, you know, quote unquote fake Australian accent and mocks it and says, and Pip says, you don't do it right. But she sounds exactly the same. Anyway, I just (laughs) wanted to mention that because it's so hilarious because it's just so, 
it's a terrible accent, but it's also really great and really fun and I can't find any flaws with it. But that's just a really fun moment because it's just like this whole thing, this whole conceit is just so silly and it's basically just a great way for five women to have a lot of fun together on screen. And that, you know, for me is enough. Um, and I laughed out loud a lot. Yeah, so I think it did. It was a great time. It did its job, I yeah. thought. Yeah. What did you make of it, Anders? I agree. Um, it is. It's very, very silly. Kate McKinnon's character is like particularly watching it as an Australian, there's an added level to all of this. Like she literally I mean, so she literally arrives off the plane late to this bachelorette's weekend. They're at this ritzy restaurant, um, and she wanders in with all her suitcase. Uh, her suitcases and like she literally just pulls out this jar of Vegemite she's like oh I'm hungry I need to eat and it's like I cringed a bit and then I like I I was prepared to go to groan really throughout all of the Australian jokes in it but yeah it was fun she won me over it's a very I mean very warm hearted very warm hearted film very generous towards its characters the relationships between these women were hilarious I also thought the husband and his group of male friends doing the Bachelor's Weekend was equally amusing. <laughs> um, one of them played by the great YouTube actor, Bo, uh, YouTube actor, YouTube comedian, uh, Bo Burnham, who I haven't seen in a movie before. Um, but yeah, so they're very like sort of stiff and awkward and they're, they're doing a cheese tasting, I think. At the same time, the girls are going wild in wine Miami. Tasting, I think. A wine, wine tasting, <laughs> yes, that's right. I thought that was a fun juxtaposition. Some great cameos. Demi Moore was hilarious. Yeah. It's mm. great to see her show up. Yeah, I it and the other thing I enjoyed about it actually is it does take its time. It's a long movie. It is a long movie, and probably maybe overlong. But um, it didn't rush through any of its comedy set pieces. Um, even if uh, I agree with you, even if um, it towards the middle it did feel like we were sort of in an episodic series, episodic series of events. Yeah, it was, just, it was just well made, I thought. Yeah, I want to go back to that. You mentioned the, yeah, the, the male uh, bachelor party mm. that they're doing. They're doing a wine tasting and they, mo- it's, you know, it's very, I think I found this very funny. It's mocking them all as being really stuffy and then it goes another step and it mocks basically people who like wine tasting and wine label copy that no one can ever understand unless you're a wine <laughs> connoisseur. Um, it's very funny and very sharp and I've seen people try and make that joke several times yeah. but never as well and I think yeah. that the reason why this was so good is that it was pointing out how stupid some some people's attitudes towards certain things can be but there was no malice or cruelty in yeah. any of it. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's why it took a little bit longer than it needed to or, you know, not that it needed to, but that it was a little bit of a longer movie because it just it never cut short and it never really like took the easy way out of any of its jokes. And that was what was really nice. You know, people were cruel to each other, but there was always it's, it's satire in some ways, but it was very, you know, it was never um, hateful towards its yeah, subject. No, yeah, no, yeah. totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really like this. I thought the, there was such a manic energy to it that even though there were a lot of jokes that didn't quite work or that were a bit too ridiculous, it was always like thir- you know less than 30 seconds until the next gag came along. And one thing I thought it did really well was it, the way that it literally infantilized Scarlett Johansson's like, fiancé <laughs> by putting him in adult diapers for almost the entirety of the movie. And even that was part of a nod to like a, a like a lesbian love story based on the real life, you know, lesbian love story of the, the sad astronaut as they refer to it here. Oh and yes, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> that was 
that was hilarious. So, like, the movie segues into this, like, lengthy explanation of this truce. I remember that story of the sad astronaut who, like, wore the diapers to, like, go and drive (laughs) across America in search of her great love or something. Yeah. We we get that recited to us in this sort of hilarious monologue. There's quite a few things like that. Like, Alana Glazer's character just slips in all these, like, great little feminist stories or tales of police brutality in Nebraska against women and all this sort of stuff. And it becomes this almost revolutionary in a way that goes beyond what people got excited about Bridemaids for, I think, which was, you know, a really great film and a, a bit of a landmark in its own way. This, to me, feels like another landmark, but it's not getting received like that. If you want to look at the reviews, like, internationally, there's a lot of people are like, oh, you know, it's a bit crazy and a bit wild and it doesn't really quite work. It's a bit weekend at Bernie's. It's a bit all these other things. But to me, I, th- I mean, I'm not that familiar with Broad City. I lasted, like, three episodes and I was like, I don't like any of these people. No one's learning anything. It's not going anywhere. I'm out of here. <laughs> Which is the same thing I said about Seinfeld stupidly a long time ago. Like, nobody seems to learn anything. I mean, the lessons were a little bit, you know, cheesy and a little bit shallow, you know, the lessons that these people learn. Um, And one thing that really annoyed me actually is that Jess and Alice who have this kind of – there's a lot of tension building up towards them because Alice has really high expectations of their friendship and doesn't seem to have moved on from college Mm. days. Um, And Jess has a go at her and says – you're only here because you want to take some more photos for your Facebook page. And then it's, you know, Alice finds it very offensive. Fair enough. But then she goes and, and Jess finds out that (laughs) Alice has written her that her mother is sick and can't, and just her mother has requested to see photos of her having fun with her (laughs) friends. And I was, I didn't think that was necessary. I I was like, I found Jess's complaints completely well-founded. And I didn't think that that was necessary in order for, you know, the lesson and the growth to have a way of of developing i Mm -hmm. felt like there could have been perhaps something a little bit more subtle and gentle done and then of course everyone just forgives each other in the end anyway (laughs) um but that could have been perhaps a little bit more well done yeah Yeah. i thought it really sort of laid that on a bit too thick at that moment Mm. um uh, but yeah on the whole i really liked it i thought the performances too were great scarlett johansson was very good i thought at, at sort of uniting this group of um, women and, you know, she played the genuine emotional parts straight. She played the comedy very well. She sort of did everything she was supposed to do and she managed to navigate that particularly well, I think. Yeah, I was really surprised by off the back of Ghost in the Shell where she's pretty much impassive the entire mm. film. In this one, her face is constantly expressive. She's always under stress. She's always laughing. She's always it's always moving. Like, it's really strange to see her that expressive. Yeah, and one. the other thing is that she is an excellent comedian and everyone in this film is a great comedian in their own right. Um, and the, the script is very well written. The lines are very funny so that even your little casual characters who just kind of flip by in the background, they're all very funny um, because the humor, I mean, it, it comes from the script, but it also comes from the staging and the direction and the, um, like the, you know, the physicality of it all. It's a, you know, it's a very physical comedy as well in perhaps the same tradition as, as a whole bunch of other similar comedies of this kind. And of course, Kate McKinnon is very Mm. physical comedian and she's excellent, but I found that everyone else was as well. Yeah. It feels kind of redundant to say it, but to see a film like this so heavily feminized, so strong on just like pretty much all male characters are constantly responding to women's moves or women's drives or mm. how wonderful Scarlett Johansson is in the case of her husband and his ludicrous trip in adult diapers from Washington down to Florida. Mm. It's just, it just felt so exciting. Mm. It, was, it was really, really great. I really loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do – I did feel – I don't know if you guys think I'm being too harsh, but it 
feels a little bit like because Luciana Agnello has done Broad City, they were all from the Upright Citizens Brigade kind right. of, you know, school. It feels a little bit like this could possibly become another one of those old guards of SNL crew just all doing the same yeah, projects okay. over and over and over, which... Uh, you know, I can't remember what what film it was, but at one point when it was, I think it was something to do. Maybe it was um, Maya Rudolph's new project, but it was something to do with, you know, all of these people just working together and not. And it seemed like a, was you know these comedians worked so well together, but they just weren't doing anything new. And I just hope that that doesn't become of these people because mm. Lucia Agnello and Paul Burns, I think is his name, who played. Um, Scarlett Johansson's fiance they're a couple they're a romantic and creative couple they've been working together for 10 years kind of thing and so Mm. uh, I hope that there's no staleness that comes from these kind of things yeah that was a that's just a little thing that I'm a bit you know Mm. wary of when I when I watch these comedies like this yeah I I don't think we really need another um, Brat Pack because I think that's you know where the Apatow crew has sort of fallen is a it is very much repeating yeah it does feel a bit repetitive mm. um this though i didn't feel was repetitive people oh no no not at all people have not compared it to bridesmaids and i've compared it to bachelorette which is a film that i love so much and everyone should go and watch bachelorette yeah. leslie headland um but people are i mean all people will always reach for you know the the milestones of history you know all recent history as it were in order to you know kind of describe the, the new phenomenon and so i think that that is that's what's been happening with this but it's not stale this production is not at all no this had a real no no not birth to it mm. but I'm, I'm a little worried that they're going to go for rough night too and make it r- grosser and crazier and have more period related and tampon related jokes and whatever else they feel they need to do to top this in some way i didn't feel like any of it was exploitative gross no, not a, no. comedy which is mm. great because they did do that a bit but it all felt i don't know particularly for you guys seem to agree with me, but as a as a woman who's possibly done that thing before, you know, where you say tampon because you need because <laughs> it's a yeah. keyword to get out of a situation. It all felt so honest and just great to see that on screen because men get to have their fucking gross out jokes all the time and just have this language on screen. And it was so that was that was really great and it didn't reach. It didn't heavy make, gross out. No, there was no. Which was so nice. There was no bridesmaids shitting in shitting in the sinks <laughs> scene. Yeah. There was there was felt shoehorned into that film. <laughs> There's nothing like that here. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's anyway. much smarter. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I really liked liked it a lot. Mm. Yeah, same. What do you want? To see you. How did you find me? You changed your name. Is that difficult? Is it alright, Pete? Yeah, it's all good, mate. How long have you been married? Four years. Poor woman, no idea who she's married to. I don't know anything about you. You were my neighbor's daughter, not a target. Where did you go? Why did you leave me? Una is the first feature film from Australian director Benedict Andrews, who is well known for some significant theatre he has directed, including A Streetcar Named Desire with Gillian Anderson. Una is adapted from a play by David Harrower, who also wrote the screenplay for the film. And it returns to Una, a woman played by Rooney Mara, 15 years after she was sexually abused by her father's best friend, Ray, played by Ben Mendelsohn, when she was only 13. As we learn through fragmented memories and flashbacks, Ray and Una 
ran away for three months together and planned to continue running until he was picked up by the police and she was returned home. Aside from flashbacks, Una is contained mostly within the harsh artificial lights of a factory where Ray works and has very clear links to its theatrical origins, echoing its tightly controlled subject matter, its psychologically restricted characters within these confined sets. This was marketed as a psychological thriller. Andy, do you think that's an accurate label? No, not really, but I do think it's uh, an interesting drama. Uh, I think there was a, a fear that quite a few people I've spoken to have from looking at the trailer thinking this is going to be a rape apologist film this is like my alarm bells are going off. And then after I watched it, I had a look at some user reviews online and there is a bit of a split. Some people still feel that after having watched it. Other people think, no, it's a much more sensitive handling of a very complex issue. This is just one version of how any people could react in totally different ways to these sorts of horrific events happening to them. And uh, while it doesn't quite move into somewhere like Mysterious Skin, which I thought was an amazing take on sexual abuse as a child and the different ways that people interpret that, this to me seemed much more dialed down. It was much more about confrontation. There was a lot of really, really great dialogue, I thought, but then the way it was put together really kind of pulled me out of some of the scenes. There was a lot of cross-cutting between time frames, mm. between young Una and then Rooney Mara's Una. Young Ru- Una played by Ruby Stokes, so I thought it was fantastic. Better than Rooney Mara, I thought. Yeah, she's an incredible face, really, mm. really expressive. She reminded me a bit of the, some of the girls from Mustang, actually, the way that they were just kind of able to wear this huge, you know, oppressive situations with this kind of grace and, mm. yeah, move, move, move on in their own sort of ways. There was a bit, it was kind of clumsily handled, I thought, in some parts, but the performances, I thought, were really strong, although I know that's not a popular opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really liked and appreciated that, you know, this was a story where Una was struggling to express to Ray that – He ruined her life basically by doing this to her at the age of 13. But it also spent quite a bit of time and I don't think enough time. I don't, I think I appreciate what it was trying to do in kind of presenting um, both sides of the story, if you will, but I don't think it did it quite enough. I really appreciated how it went to the side of saying that she also loved him or, you know, loved him in the way that a 13-year-old could, which is perhaps, you know, not properly, um, and that she desired him as well and she loved what – she loved the happiness that, that they had together. And even so, him stepping over the line and actually, you know, sexually abusing her was too much for her and that she's hated her life every single day since then. I mean, I thought that that was really good and I, I did – like that I just don't think it went far enough it kind of said this is a tricky issue and this film is not going to do anything either way it's not going to really get into how difficult everything is Um, you know I love movies that can really get into your tricky territory and talk about unpleasant things and just make everything seem really unpleasant um, and I don't think this film did did that. I mean, when it ended, and we don't have to talk about the ending, but when it ended, I was I just I said, "What's the point? Why mm. did this movie exist? It didn't it didn't mm. take a strong enough stance mm. either way. Mm. Yeah. So what's the point? I was really disappointed by it. Do you? I haven't seen Una, but um, I'd be interested in your take on. Do you think it's it does? Is it afraid of taking a stance or? I mean, the way I see films that tackle controversial issue, I completely agree with you. Like, 
take a stance. It doesn't even matter if you will offend people, just say something because that provokes mm. a conversation or it, it, as a viewer, if I'm offended by something, I start questioning why and then it, it does something to I mean, me. Maybe that's does the this point. film do something to you? No, it no. didn't. And well, maybe I, I that's just, the point, Andy, is that it doesn't take a stance because it basically just wants to show this, is, this can ruin people's lives even though it doesn't seem that way from, from the, the outset. But I did feel just that it wasn't even doing that. Right, because so I got a, quite a different well reading enough. of it from you, I think, mm-hmm. because yeah. the whole th- thrust of the film is that Una needs to confront Ray. She needs to you know, redress the the way that she feels that she was mishandled, it, that he only got four years in jail, she's going to be ruined for the rest of her life. Mm. So I feel like by the ending, which, again, we don't need to talk about, there was a sense of progression, there was a sense of understanding. And maybe it wasn't rendered quite as clearly as it needed to be in the mm. film. I thought there was a lot of, well, let the audience decide sort of mm. um, thing. Because like in a film like Lolita, where, you know, it's 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 those are really interesting characters, even though they're vile and lecherous and pathetic. Yeah. In this way, you know, um, Mendelssohn is given a sort of kind of almost a dignity in a way which is really strange. Yeah, I do agree with you there. I did like him and his character. I really didn't like Rooney Mara's performance and I don't think it was all her. I think that this is too perhaps because – it, the screenplay was adapted by the the playwright. I feel like it's was had was far too like tied to its theatrical origins. Yeah, the, it was very stagey. The di- the, yeah, the locations were stagey, but I found the dialogue was so stagey yeah, as well. And I yeah. don't I felt like Rooney Mara was reading lines that right. were p- poorly written. Okay, that was what I thought when she, you know, she did lots of run-ons um, of di- and I was like. Is that what people do when stuff's poorly written? I just yeah, didn't. Okay. I didn't. She didn't sell her line readings. Well, basically. I was a bit disappointed with the way she was written because there was a scene with Riz Ahmed, who plays a character called Scott, who's a co-worker of Ray's, mm. and she seems to be able to seduce people very quickly and convince people very, very quickly. And that almost drew me to think: Is that what we're meant to believe happened when she was thirteen? That she somehow seduced him, or there's some? Oh, I didn't think so. I almost thought that that was just a little bit of an easy way out to say, "Oh my God, she's been damaged, and now she just has meaningless sex in nightclubs." Like, well, that's and I was like, mm, can mm. we get a little bit more complicated, uh, you know, complex kind of insight into how her life has been fucked up rather than just meaningless sex? I yeah, don't it wasn't know. so much the sex; it was more the dialogue that we should just coerce people really, really quickly. And I was like, well, I don't know. That seems like a bit rote in a way. Bennett now Benedict Andrews, the director. He, I think, this is his film debut. His yeah, lengthy debut, career. Yeah. Um, on the stage, how do you think he goes with translating this to a filmic language? It's play because it's based on a play, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't. I mean, as I said, I thought didn't think that the dialogue was good. I felt like the play. I love stories that are told fractured through memory, and I didn't think this was done well in that way at all. It was all too. I mean, I really, I quite liked how intercut it was with present day and past, but I just felt like it was everything. You know, in a sense of like he maybe he didn't want to commit one way or the other about, you know, should we condemn a rapist or should we not? Um, you know, I felt like he didn't want to commit either way to a present, you know, this really uncomfortable subject on screen or will I just present it through, um, you know, a nice shot of a tree and we can yeah. just imagine the <laughs> There's a lot of nice happening shots. behind yeah. it. There were a lot of nice shots, but there was a lot that just didn't work for me. And I mm. also felt like the music, and I'm sorry – um, Jed Herzl, <laughs> who has done some great stuff, but I just, it seemed to me as though it was like 
a generic thriller kind of really okay tacked on music that was gave nothing no emotional impetus no emotional support to me in the audience or to the character oh, I, I really thought. liked it but I did feel it was mm. about 10 years old yeah I thought it was maybe some leftover stuff that he'd recorded in like 2005 or something that mm. worked in this like industrial environment well yeah maybe it was leftover from Snowtown or something <laughs> um yeah um, anyway there was I just I didn't like this movie at all I don't think it did it's a really important subject, but I just didn't think that it it, it went anywhere. Mm, okay. No, I thought it went places, but I wish it had done it with a bit more surety. I also was, reacted a bit against the manufactured tension around around it. Like at the beginning, we've got um, Una leaving her mother and her mother's worried about where she is. We've got a really important business meeting that Ray needs to be able to step up to. Then we've got a party that evening. This felt like all these... Oh, yeah, and it did feel... Because it all takes place in one day. Yeah. Mm. I do... And this is, you know, the depiction of cinematic time is is sometimes vague and unclear and that's fine. But it did feel like, again, returning to the origins of the play, that perhaps in a play it would have worked because it takes place, yeah, you know, absolutely. On, in one spot, in literally one spot. But in a movie they needed to try harder to make this seem believable. That was another, towards the end, yeah. you know, to add to my, um, the reasons <laughs> why I, the reasons why I didn't find this film believable, that was just another um, one that, that, um, that yeah. I Yeah, and the, the yeah. one moment of release they get is where they throw some rubbish around a, a rec room, oh, yeah. Yeah. which I imagine on stage would be kind of exciting. Yeah. There'd be this big physical thing, but it, yeah, and with a lot of key scenes, it was shot very darkly. Yeah. It was very shot yeah. very closely. Um, and it really kind of lost something in the translation, I felt. Yeah, mm. yeah. Anyway, I was very disappointed by this film. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm still saying it's worth okay. a look if you're interested in this sort of subject matter and how people might treat it, but I think it's been done better. This second-rate funk backing track you can hear right now can mean only one thing, and it's time for the Cultural Capital Film Diary. Cinema Nova is hosting the Refugee Film Festival until June 23rd. The RFF, or ROF as no one is calling it, showcases short and feature films about the migrant populations, including Belinda Mason's documentary Constance on the Edge, about a Sudanese family's journey to Australia, which features a Q&A with the film's key character, Constance Ocott, and Lara Lee's film about modern-day colonialism in Western Sahara, Life is Waiting. Melbourne Webfest returns for its fifth year to put a spotlight on new forms of online narrative storytelling in a festival program focused equally on international and Australian productions. That runs at various venues around Melbourne from June 29th until July 2nd. More information can be found at melbournewebfest.com. Highlights from this fortnight's Aster screenings include a 25th anniversary of Wayne's World on Thursday the 22nd and a pairing of Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing with Jordan Peele's Get Out on Friday the 23rd. Still at the Astor, on the 25th, a screening of silent classic Pandora's Box is accompanied by a live score. That's followed by a double bill of Stage Fright and Angels with Dirty Faces, and I'll be going to see a double bill of Predator and Predator 2, as I've never seen either. That's on June 28th. Over at Acme, June 29 sees the opening of the Aardman season, Wallace and Gromit and Friends, which takes a long look at the renowned studio's stop-frame animation successes, with plenty of interactive exhibits for younger cinema goers. Eloise, what's happening over at Cinematech? Finishing up an Eric Roma period drama season, the last two weeks, coming up in the next fortnight, then followed by a season focused on Hirokazu Koreeda, which is really exciting. So some rare stuff there, um, rare and much loved stuff in that season. Great. Okay. Thank you. Um, and now to Mubi. 
Anders, did anything stand out from the current slate? For you? Yes, well, I'm dying to see Cam Archer's Shit Year, which debuted at Cannes Directors Week a few years ago. The young experimental filmmaker shoots Ellen Barkin, who's one of my all-time favourite actresses, in black and white 16mm film. And by all accounts, this is a fragmented portrait of an ageing movie star who shuns success and flees to the woods. So I'm very excited to see formal experimentation and Ellen Barkin. They're two (laughs) things that I enjoy in life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm keen to check out, and I haven't yet, even though it's a short film of 22 minutes, so hopefully... Everyone can get to it. Isabella Mora, by, directed by a French director, Isabelle Paglia. Uh, excuse my pronunciation. This uh, stood out for me because, well, the movie synopsis says it's um, about the uh, kind of exploring the connection between the wild fables of Adriana, a modern little girl, and the poetry of Isabella. And, you know, I kind of love these forays into, um, you know, the fabular kind of concoctions and mm. real life and exploration and, you know, connections to literature and period drama and all of these things. So did you just say fabula? I did. The Russian formalist term for plot? Oh, that's not Is what it? I meant. <laughs> Fabulist. I meant oh, to say fabulous. Sorry. <laughs> sorry I was very excited. My <laughs> honours thesis was on fabula and sujet. Oh, to Russian no, terms no. For I've story been teaching too many first year students <laughs> <laughs> this year. Fabulist is the the term that okay, I meant cool. actually. Still cool. I'm leaving that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can get Eloise get schooled on um, <laughs> no, Russian formalism. Russian formalism. No. Yeah. Um, anyway, keen to check that one out. Brilliant. Um, my pick is the 2007 Rwandan film Manyurangabo, which uh, was made over 11 days by the Korean American filmmaker Lee Isaac Ching. Marianne Garbo tells the story of the friendship of two teenage Rwandan boys, Nagabo, a Tutsi, and Sangwa, a Hutu, in the aftermath of the genocide that claimed around 800,000 lives. The film begins with uh, boys taking a journey whose purpose is later revealed, but incorporates a visit to Sangwa's family home, um, which he, a place he hasn't been for the last three years, and he ends up... Uh, this visit ends up putting a lot of pressure on their friendship, which is placed under even more pressure when Sangwa's father makes an important discovery, which I won't spoil. But towards the end of the film, and the whole reason I think that this, this film is worth seeing, not only because it's like a really interesting story about a place that we don't often get to see on screen, but there's a key scene where one of the boys encounters a Rwand, the Rwandan poet laureate at a roadside shop, and he just does this poem, recounts this poem to camera, which, over, which is like take maybe seven, eight minutes, but it's just one of the most powerful things I've seen on movie at all. Um, it just managed to encapsulate this whole the whole themes in a really really simple way, which is you know all about um, reconciliation and friendship and being able to bridge cultures cultural divides and put you know traumatic pasts behind you. Um, I think it's a really beautiful film. It's quite slow. It's quite sparse, but it kind of should be in a way because it, there's a lot to contemplate, um, and it's all worth it for this one particular key scene. I think. Great. And that's up for another thirty days. That just arrived on movie today. Cool. And if you are interested in signing up to movie, please go to movie.com slash cultural capital to get your first month free. We recommend it. Jamie, would you please wake up, Abby? Yeah, Abby? No, stop it. I'm menstruating. Abby, you know what? You're menstruating. Okay, but do you have to say it? Okay, and do we really need to know everything that's going on with you? What? I'm menstruating. Why is that a big deal? We don't need to hear about that. Thank you. If you ever want to have an adult relationship with a woman, like if you want to have sex with a woman's vagina, you need to be comfortable with the fact that the vagina menstruates. And just say menstruation, it's not a big deal.
So start saying it now. Menstruation. Now. Yes. Menstruation. Menstruation. Jamie, no. You don't have to. You're saying it like you're scared. Don't say it like you're scared. Abby. Say it like it's normal. Menstruation. 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 Not bad. And we're going to close out today with a look at um, the year so far, given that this is our sort of midway point for cultural capital in 2017. Now's the time to look back at a lot of films that we maybe, some of which we maybe didn't get a chance to enthuse about or some which we maybe we have returned to and now have different impressions of. I'd be keen to see what you guys have chosen. Anders, would you like to begin? Yes. Before I begin, I just want to make a quick note on methodology. Oh, good. Please, um, yes, I love yeah, this. Okay, good. So I've asked myself, which three films would I like to revisit? Uh, what films have lingered for longer than a week or two? And now that we've been doing our podcast for over a year... Congratulations, everybody. Congratulations, team. I've come to realise that most new release movies don't linger, which makes those that stick around extra special and maybe even worth watching everything else. Maybe. I'd also like to say that I have not watched every single thing that's come out by any stretch of the imagination, and I've stopped obsessively logging things on Letterboxd. Why? Oh, I just found it sucking all the joy out of film for me. (laughs) Really? It was becoming like this rote habit. I don't know. Is it like a diary you can look back on and go, oh, yeah, I did Mm. watch that? Yeah, you can, but then, like... I don't know. No, it was too much. It was just, it gave me so much anxiety. I had to give up. (laughs) Um, So I've come up with this list and it may not be definitive, but here it is. And also I would like to quickly note that I don't think I've responded as deeply to any of these films as I have to the Twin Peaks revival. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah, okay. I was wondering. I didn't put it, but I was like, that's a film, technically. Can we yeah. put that on our list? Although we've yeah. only seen a third of it. Mm, I know, true. but it's so good. <laughs> yeah, I do. Maybe oh, we can have an episode Twin Peaks episode at some point. <laughs> um, it's proper screen art, and it's my absolute favourite viewing of the year so far. And you can hear all about it on Andy's Twin Peaks Season 3 podcast. Um, at TP Season 3. At TP Season 3. Anyway, okay, all of that out of the way. My number three film which I feel like I've been talking about for years now literally is Personal Shopper (laughs) I don't want to spend too much time on this because I have been ranting about this since I saw it a year ago at Sydney Um, but I think it's a really lovely quite oddball look at how we juggle mortality and mundanity I love Olivia Assayez I love Kristen Stewart I love sexy European locations and it's all in this one movie Mm, so that's my number te- three. Texting on screen. Innovative and texting, texting on screen. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. so much. Um, well, choice. I think I've uh, perhaps gone about this a little bit differently than you because I uh, these aren't just films that have been released this year. So I'm looking at, um, in fact, I think all of the films, yeah, all of the films in my top three and I also have uh, kind of a few extras. M- many of them I saw at Sundance and so they haven't been released yet. Mm this year um so i hope that's okay with you but you know they're Mm. in my they're in my 2017 bracket um i also haven't seen everything that's come out this year so you know i you know this is just basically personal opinion as is everything um involving me and my talking (laughs) um anyway so given that i just spent um quite a while slagging on rini mara or so it felt i felt really bad about that but i just really yeah didn't like una anyway Top three, um, one of my top three films of the year so far is A Ghost Story, David Lowry's film that is being released, I think, next week in Melbourne yes. or in the coming weeks anyway. Yeah, a couple of weeks time. Mm. So this is a film that I've said it's really hard to talk about and people have seen the trailer and come to me and been like, how is that going to be a good film? What is that trailer even doing? Basically, I think it's a film that you should see without knowing anything about it. Um, it's really hard to discuss. I 
can't discuss the plot. Basically, there is no plot and also I don't want to give whatever plot there is away. It's about a ghost who is a ghost in a sheet <laughs> who haunts an area of land for hundreds, thousands of years. And by the end of the <laughs> – this is what I wrote um, on 4.3 film when I was kind of briefly renewing it. By the end of the film, he's wearing a really dirty sheet. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a really fascinating exploration of the passage of time, both as a concept of the universe and a personal experience. Um, and the director is really not afraid of letting, you know, mundane moments linger for – much too long, you know, in traditional cinematic terms of time. But I love films that do this. I feel like it's it's quite a violent film, emotionally violent, um, but it's just so interesting. And you might react to it. You know, it was a film that when I saw it, I loved the first 10 minutes and then I was spent quite a long time actively um, being feeling some aggression towards it. And then I – and now I think it's just absolutely stunning. Yeah, wow. So, you know, a film that can do that to me, I just have to kind of – put it up there and say, you know. Yeah, awesome. Mm, what a great film. So great. I cannot wait to see this. Yeah, yeah same. I, w- I was pushing to first review this, but you've pretty much Yeah, I don't think that 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 we really should, mm. but I'm really looking forward to hearing what you guys have to yeah. say. Um well, it sounds like that film is not really like any other film. Is that really say it's highly original? I yeah, probably. But yeah. I mean, I haven't seen every film, so yeah, but I, it doesn't I don't sound know. like anything. Well, anyway, my, my number 3 is a film that I think is really highly original and kind of like a minor miracle in 2017, and that film is Colossal. Usually when you get an, like an international director making their American first feature, there's a lot of compromises. There's a lot of, okay, we're going to bring you on because you like what you did there and then we'll dial it down because we'll have to go through a bunch of committees to get the star power and the money that we need. But um, director Nacho Vigalondo is kind of best known for Spanish horror and thriller films. He's He directed a part of a VHS horror compilation. Okay. Mm. He managed to wind up getting Anne Hathaway, who is possibly one of the best portrayers of alcoholic dysfunction that I've seen in recent years. I think Rachel Getting Married was a fantastic turn of for her. Oh, yeah, she's great in that. Yeah, and it, well, she's pretty much as good as that here mm. because she has this mm. very strange trajectory. And it's such a weird film because basically you look at it, you're like, okay, so we've got a Hollywood A-lister, you know, it's going to be a vehicle for her. But we've also got this whole monster movie kind of thing going on. So the storyline is Anne Hathaway is um, dumped by her boyfriend. She has an alcoholic dysfunct- like life. She's kind of falling apart in New York. She goes back to her hometown in upstate New York and back into the family home, which is this kind of empty mansion, a bit like the one from Personal Shopper actually. Um, where she kind of moves in, there's no furniture. It's kind of almost feels like it's going to be haunted, and then she realizes she has this strange, strange connection to this uh, mas- massive Godzilla-style uh, creature that's destroying Seoul, Korea, on a on a semi-regular basis. And she starts understanding that she's got this really weird like uh, connection going on, and it becomes this kind of commentary on mental health in a way, where there's this whole disaster, like the world is actually you know people being killed by your actions, and there's this huge sense of guilt and. But then also the film just kind of turns – like does this like about 180 and it ends up being about toxic masculinity and how men actually pretend often to be feminists and are actually really, really selfish and actually totally looking out for themselves. And Jason, Jason Sudeikis is beautifully cast as being this guy who you kind of misread. And then the film goes into a much deeper level that I won't spoil again, but it just feels like a film is so weird. Like it's so interesting and it is like a, it's a fairly mainstream movie in 2017. It just feels incredible. And mm. I – didn't, I really wanted to draw some attention to it because even though it doesn't always work and it does juggle these tones quite awkwardly sometimes, it's still fascinating. Great. Yes, and mm-hmm. he's very interesting in that movie, I would say, Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, yeah. Did you Have you seen this? Yes, yeah. I I mean, he's he's almost like a pathological nice guy, you know, and he does that really, really well, I think. Mm-hmm. And Hathaway is great too. Yeah, weird, weird movie. Totally recommend watching yeah. it. I loved it. Cool, yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> um, my number two movie is... 
Uh, the only Hollywood movie I've seen, I think, this year that I actually would like to rewatch, and that's Logan. It's violent and insular. That's probably the best description for this very curious instalment in the X-Men series. Uh, apparently Hugh Jackman's last appearance as Wolverine. Everybody in this movie is exhausted. And the America that these characters inhabit is also exhausted. I've not quite seen another Hollywood movie that's as aware of the Trumpian moment that we're living through as Logan is, even though it is set um, a couple of decades into the future, I think. But it does have a lot to say about power and American politics, much more than I was perhaps expecting or anticipating, I think. It's a road movie that spends a lot of time in two key locations, a casino uh, and a farmhouse. A lot of it uh, takes place in sort of the de depressed locations in the southern United States. Um, both of these places, the casino and the farmhouse, are used to great effect for some stunning and also quite affecting action sequences. It's very, it's a, quite a violent film, viscerally sort of violent in a way, because like, so, so Wolverine's thing is like he has these blades that come out of his hand, right? And, like, when you actually think about it for five seconds, it's kind of horrific and gruesome. And this film is fully aware of how weird and how that works, I guess, on a sort of violent, the level of, uh, yeah, of, of kind of gore, but also, like, psychological horror. I don't know. There's a lot going on. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so, yeah, very keenly aware of that. And it also, But it also has, I think, quite a generosity towards this trio of main characters played by Jackman, Patrick Stewart, and newcomer Daphne Keane, as the uh, teenage girl who's also got this claw thing going on. Uh, there are real stakes at play in the film and it's finishing off a sort of multi-film arc that I've sort of dipped in and out of all of those X-Men movies. And so it has this sort of overwhelming sense of resolution about it. It's a really odd sensation, I think, for a film to so totally inhabit a space like that. And it might even, I would perhaps suggest, be only a consequence of our current obsession with franchises and world building is that we're sort of dealing now with these films that have a particular generation of characters and they last for 10 or 15 years and then we move on to the next generation. You can see, you know, Marvel setting up the end of the current round of Avengers characters next year and then they'll move on to the next one. So this idea of things finishing up in this particular way might be a direct result of current franchise-driven Hollywood filmmaking, mm, which is interesting. quite interesting. I don't really know. I haven't really thought about it. I just thought of that then and put it out there. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I find it a really fascinating movie and I would really like to re-watch it. And it looks looks gorgeous too. Yeah, great. Excellent choice. Yeah. Mine um, is a tricky one. So this film is maybe not one that I expected would have gone in my top three, but it's something that I've constantly thought of since I saw it at Sundance because I think of the performances. So this film is Landline, the much anticipated follow-up to Gillian Robespierre's Obvious Child from 2014. Uh, now this was announced last year. It is stars Jenny Slate again. And I think when the news came out that, you know, these two were reuniting again, people got really, really excited because Obvious Child is you know, super excellent, just yeah, kind of films. one of the best, like, you know, indie comedies of, of recent years. This I love. It's filmed in NYC, set in the 80s, um, kind of focused around this very tight family dynamic, you know, tight and also faltering family dynamic in the 80s. And it really does paint 
80s NYC quite well, quite fully. Um, so this is, you know, in its kind of evocation of a particular time, um, really energetic. It's a, a great comedy with a great performance from Jenny Slate. So she plays Dana. The film is about her, her sister Ali, played by Abby Quinn, and their mother Pat, played by Edie Falco. And Edie oh, Falco. Yeah, I know, right? Represent. She is just the best. This is uh, from a script written by Robespierre and Elizabeth Holm, who I think both also wrote the script for Obvious Child. So, and it's really well written. It just makes this a really beautiful, realistic, I think, family dynamic. Dana and Ali constantly bicker. They both bicker independently with their mother as well, but all three constantly reaffirm their love for each other. And that's what is really beautiful is that it's a film about kind of, you know, breaking up between couples and also families, but also just about, you know, the stronghold of of relationships, I suppose. Dana kind of, I suppose the overall premise is that Dana is having a crisis about the direction of her life, questioning her relationship with her fiance and doesn't know kind of what she's doing and doesn't know about her job. And so, so from there, all of this other kind of stuff happens. As a film that offers three rich roles for women, as well as for each of their male partners, especially the father, Alan, played by John Turturro, amazing, Mm -hmm. and Dana's fiancé, Ben, played by Jay Duplass, um, just makes it so great to watch. You know, these aren't just perhaps in the same way as as Rough Night. You know, they're they're not just kind of token characters. They actually, uh, you know, have a lot to do with what these women are exploring Mm. and how these women are um, going about their lives. They're not just pawns, narrative pawns, I suppose. They're they're real people. They seem to be real people. Anyway, I just think that there's a lot in here, um, a lot of really beautiful stuff and that there's a lot of romantic and emotional cheating, but also it's a really tight family and a really beautiful portrait. Um, And I really want to see it again. Special film. Cool. Yeah, sounds really good. Uh, My number two is... uh well, we do, earlier you talked about films that um, really have stuck with you and are still kind of leaving an impression. And my number two is definitely one of those. It's a 15-minute film that was actually shown at last year's Myth. And so I'm not sure if it counts as a 2017 film, but I saw it at The Stranger With My Face Festival in Hobart and it's a couple of weeks ago won Best Short Film at the St Kilda Film Festival. And that film is Slapper, which is set in suburban Melbourne by made by Melbourneian director Lucy Schroeder. And it's uh, about a woman uh, who's played by Sapphire Blossom who has an intense and unsatisfying sexual encounter and then spends the rest of the film trying to get source the morning after pill or source the money to buy it while I'm having to look after this little girl called Vegas. And it's got this intensity which I've never seen anything else have. It's just like this hurricane ferocity. Just basically the camera barely ever leaves you know, Sapphire Blossom's face at all. But she just goes through these encounter after encounter with these really strange little... Um, asides, there's some moments of quiet reflection and there's this intense atmosphere. The, the suburban Australia just looks like a horrifically violent, but intensely rendered place. She's obviously, you know, she wrote it and directed it, so he's, you know, his skills to, to spare. But just a couple of days ago, she signed to this New York production-based, uh, New York-based production company called New Light Films, and so she's got this whole bunch of new resources. So I'm really fascinated to see what happens next with her. I think it's a film that I don't think you can see it on YouTube, but it's still playing a lot of festivals, so I would definitely... Remember her name, Lucy Schroeder, and look out for Slapper. Cool. 
My, my number one film um, so far is one that we mentioned all of two weeks ago, uh, 20th Century Women. Mm. Um, so, look, we discussed it in depth and I might go on about it, but I'm really dying to rewatch it and thankfully it's still showing, so yes. I will. Um, it's such a generous look at life building and coming into your sense of who you are, you know, identity building um, and family. It's not perfect a perfect movie, I don't think. Um, but so what? Life isn't <laughs> perfect, you guys. Um, but do you know those moments where this, this is – I was try, trying to think, how do I describe this movie in a way that sort of talks about how much it means? And to me it's like, you know those moments where you're lying in bed and you're thinking about your life and you're like – what am I doing? Why aren't I doing this? Or why can't I be open with myself about myself with a particular person? This is the kind of movie I think for everybody who has those moments in bed. Um, I feel like 20th century women, it simultaneously forgives you for your sins, but refuses to let you off the hook. It <laughs> gently dares you to live a better life while at the same time, acknowledging that that's pretty bloody hard. Um, so I'm making it sound like this movie is therapy. Maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> All I know is that I really, really like it a lot. I totally and, agree. Um, yeah. yeah. In terms of like emotionally engaging with a film, it's it's the the most I've emotionally engaged with a film I've seen this year that I can think at the moment anyway. Yeah. Brilliant. Great. Um, mine is, and I just want to say, not in order. I don't know how to put things in order. So anyway, um, I think I probably love the other two films equally. But my number one is no surprises to anyone who's spoken to me in the last six months. Call me by your name. Luca Guadagnino's adaptation oh of so Andrea Ackerman's film. Yeah, so uh, this screened, I think, twice in the past week at the Sydney Film Festival. So there'll be some more Australians who've seen it now. Um, and it is screening at MIFF uh, coming up in August. But this film basically blew me out of the park. I loved Luca Guadagnino's I Am Love from a couple of years ago and was a bit disappointed by A Bigger Splash last year. But this is just so excellent in being, you know, a study of a particular a particular time, you know, a warm summer in Italy uh, with a bunch of rich people figuring out their emotions. <laughs> I, that sounds really, really crude about about his film content, but there's nothing <laughs> wrong with doing that and really exploring it very well. And this is about, you know, young love, I suppose, unacknowledged love between, a, I think, you know, a 24-year-old academic intern and a 17-year-old son of the the academic and so it's a really beautiful exploration um army hammer plays the the intern and the the son is uh, timothy chamolet i think is his name um and they both give really beautiful performances and they're both really tender and just there are words that are unsaid and then there are like there's a few kind of you know narrative frameworks by other literature that that the father will read or that you know they're all highly intellectual and intellectually kind of engaged and so they'll read a lot of you know french romantic novels or whatever and that will often provide some kind of you know narrative either um, launch point or at least um you know curious you know raise a curiosity within the characters this is a film that is not afraid to have to be emotionally raw and to just really explore uncertainty and you can see in the two men when their their relationship is like kind of you know flourishing you see them both being really scared that the other person doesn't feel the same way Mm. and I just think that's so hard to communicate that's Mm. such a real 
thing that people feel is afraid that someone else doesn't love you as much as you love them. And this film really gets it. And that I think is apart from everything else about this movie that is amazing. Like the fact that it gets that so right made just, I think that just all of a sudden made that movie the best that I've seen. Yeah. Cause that's the feeling I took away from Moonlight as well. I thought yeah. that really explored that tension. Yeah. Gorgeously. It did too. Yeah. Mm. You're right. Mm. Yeah. Um, anyway. Oh, I'm dying to say that. That's number one on my most wanted to watch list for <laughs> okay. sure. Great. Uh, my number one uh, film that I've seen so far this year, I think, or the one, that, another one that stayed with me a lot is uh, Chowka, Please Tell Us the Time, which is a co-directorial effort from Iranian filmmaker Arash Kamali Savastani, who's based in Amsterdam, and a Kurdish journalist Baruz Buchani, who is an inmate on Manus Island. Um, and Buchani secretly filmed the interior of the detention centre, uh, interviewed fellow inmates, and then kind of quietly records these scenes um, of, from the nearby town when he's out on day release to build this quietly powerful picture of this, what it's like to be in detention. So it doesn't really try to set out to emotionally manipulate you or anything. It just kind of observes things and just builds this kind of tapestry of images, um, which kind of quietly end up amounting to more than they they seem. So there's a lot of boredom. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of just watching things. There's quite a few shots where you're looking at a beautiful beach or you're looking at some kids playing and then the camera will pull back or the iPhone pulls back to reveal that you're actually looking through some bars. There's a lot of influence from Arash uh, Savastani's hero, which is Abbas Kurastami. And so there's a lot of these sorts of just really powerful shots of some inmates on the phone to their wives back home um, in Iran who are just trying to convince their wives, like, trying to get them to understand what's happened because their wives are you know, very upset, like, you don't understand how I'm suffering, you don't know what's going on, and then, of course, you know, we're on the other end of the line. There's also a shot of a hunger striker being put into an ambulance that's kind of just r- really roughly filmed. So these are, like, you know, there's, there's not really that much reference to what's going on in the outside world which kind of works to its advantage, I suppose. Um, it's just finished screening at the Sydney Film Festival as well. Screening at Acme right now. Yeah, and Acme. Yep, that's right. Yeah, it's a short season. I think it probably will return there as well. Um, but, yeah, if you haven't seen it, then you can track it down. I think it's online as well. It's pretty much out there. And that's called Chowka. Please tell us the time. Great. Anders, do you have any shout-outs? I did. My, my nearly but not quite uh, include 20th Century Women, which I think... Me yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, it's just right up there. It's such an incredible film and definitely recommend it. Um, I really loved uh, Julia de Cornell's Raw, which we discussed as well. I thought that was really um, yeah, astonishingly, astonishingly strong debut um, for her. And I really liked um, Asghar Fahadi's The Salesman. Which oh, we also that was about. my shout-out oh, too. Yeah, no, I was going to say that. Um, that's stuck with me yeah. very, very much so since we reviewed it a few months ago. Mm. Yeah. Um, also want to shout out to two other films that I saw at Sundance. I feel like I'm bragging, guys. I'm sorry. I'm really not. But no. just there was some stunning <laughs> stuff. So Mudbound, uh, D. Rees' oh, yes. film, depicts rural Mississippi in the 1940s. It's really honest, uh, really, mm. you know, quite uh, horrific. I mean, obviously, Mississippi 1940s, you're like – think widespread racism <laughs> um, and that, you know, it, it basically doesn't hold back from that, I think. And there's a lot of, you know, unrecognised post-war trauma in there as well. There's a lot of, um, you know, emotional kind of cruelty in this film. It's really amazing. Plus Mary J. Blige mm. is in it and yeah. she needs to get all sorts of awards. And Patty Cakes. Oh, fantastic. I'm um, to see this. Yeah, which I think just screened at Sydney Film yeah. Festival as well. It's also on its way to Myth. Yeah. Is it? Okay, well, that's excellent. Um, it was just so much fun. It was such a shock. It was such a delight, this film. It's fun, but it's not 
kind of it's not tacky and it's not cheesy and it's not light by any means and some of the best kind of uh, misfit characters I've seen in a really long time on screen um, lots of fun cool um, and I'll do a quick shout out to a film King of the Belgians which is just played at Sydney and I would be unsurprised if it came down to Melbourne and it's a mockumentary about the King of Belgium who is stranded in Istanbul um, and all flights in Europe have been grounded and he has to get back to Belgium because the country is tearing itself apart. And so it's a quite funny look at, uh, and so the way he gets to Belgium is through the Baltic states. And it's a really humorous, nice, warm antidote to sort of Brexit paranoia. It celebrates open borders and Europe as an entity, as an ideal in a very funny kind of way. So yeah, that was fun to watch too. Ooh, and final shout out to Aquarius, I think, which we all liked. Oh, um, I loved really Aquarius. Loved yes, yeah. definitely. Mm. I, I don't know how you could see that. I don't think it's out on home release. Yet. It's coming, it? Um, uh, it, maybe not for a couple of months, but Acme is doing a short season. Great. Oh, fabulous. Yes, yeah, I love that film. Yeah, do catch that. Cool. Uh, thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 28 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be incredibly grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast and we're on Twitter at The Cold Cap Pod. You can find me on at Andy Ricky, Me at Eloise Laurie Ross. And I'm on Twitter at Anders Furs. We think you're great. 